This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans recording another Storage Unpacked podcast. I'm here today with Pure Storage. Before we go any further, Dan, could you just introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Dan Kogan, uh, Vice President of Product Management for Flash Array at Pure Storage. So you've just made a very interesting set of new announcements as part of Accelerate, and we're very much looking forward to digging into the detail of that. At a high level, could you just give me a, a brief overview of what those announcements are, and then we'll dig into the detail in a second. Yeah, there are a series of announcements or a handful of announcements. Um, the first is an all new Flash Array product, uh, the Flash Array E. This is um, a counterpart to our recently announced Flash Blade E. I think that was back in March where we announced that. And that was a real expansion for pure storage into the secondary data workload uh, category, going after uh, what used to be cold archives and data repositories and, and really the low cost data that's been uh, stored on high on hard disk drive based arrays um, so flashblade e came in to change that paradigm and deliver all the benefits of a pure storage array but at a acquisition price point that's right on par with hard disk drive and a tco that's far far more compelling um, flashblade e started at four petabytes the flash array e uh, now counterpart to it uh, slots into a one to four petabyte space so more uh, more scenarios we can cover for more customers. So that was announcement number one. Okay. Number two, next generation of our Flash Array X and C products. Um, these have been out in X is really kind of our, our original bread and butter uh, tier one application, high performance, low latency, uh, all Flash Array. And then C, probably our fastest growing product line, super, super popular, um, introduced QLC into the arrays uh, and has been uh, also, also used for primary production workloads, but um, with a slightly lower latency profile in the X. So big generational refresh of those two. Uh, we are now onto the R4s. And then there were a series of announcements um, from our Peer One and uh, Evergreen One parts of the business uh, really focused around data security uh, and, and upping the ransomware protection for Peer. Perfect. So if anybody hasn't guessed, we're talking today about all these new Flash Array products. Uh, and that's it's quite a big update. And it'd be interesting to, I think, before we go any further, just to dig down as, and understand why you're expanding the, the portfolio and the sort of things that customers are, are challenged with. Because I think that helps us understand why some of these products are being brought to market and where they fit. So from an industry sort of trends and issues perspective, Dan, what are you seeing that people are having as problems in the industry these days as we've moved to, to be fair, very highly scalable and very large capacity, even block storage solutions? Mm -hmm. The problems persist from my standpoint on a few, few vectors. One is the energy side of the house and the equation and just legacy storage arrays, disk-based arrays, taking up a lot of space in the data center floor. Uh, that's very valuable, especially as companies typically are loath to expand data centers and are looking at how do we how do we scale out in the cloud and what's the future strategy go forward. Every, every kind of square inch on the data center floor is very, very valuable. At the same time, uh, those legacy storage systems, in addition to taking up a lot of physical, physical space, are also consuming a lot of power. Uh, and as we all know, with everything kind of happening in the world, power and energy costs are only only increasing. Place like Europe, that's an incredibly significant issue for customers. So that's one of the challenges. Data growth is, I think, a reality no one no one contends with, and there's a lot of value in that data, and you need to store that data and process it and, and be able to extract insight from it uh, and use it to fuel your business. But just keeping up with the physical capacity behind that data is a real challenge for customers. The other part of it is the human cost of all this. 
And what does it actually take to administer the backend for the data to be able to plan for scale within your storage environment, to be able to lifecycle the data? All these different challenges fall on IT teams who are more and more stretched every day. So I think the uh, most companies that I talk to today aren't excited to have a fleet of specialized storage admins, one for, for each different array they manage or for a vendor they work with. And people have to be wear multiple hats first off and are, are typically administering more than just the storage piece of the infrastructure. Uh, oftentimes, um, other parts of the infrastructure, uh, software platforms, we see a lot of commonality between people that are responsible for, VM, for the VMware environment, as well as the storage environment, those kind of things. So just as the human side of this gets stretched, uh, our customers are trying to figure out how do I keep up with the scale of the data and management of the data and keeping the data secure while actually probably having less people to do it. Mm. I know that when I, I haven't um, done sort of hands-on management for quite a few years, probably 10 years or so now, but I know that when I was doing that as a job, and even after that, when I was doing consultancy work with some vendors to help them sort of stra build strategies around how they sell into their customers, we would do things like metrics around how many petabytes per FTE you could actually manage and things like that, because we, could, we were increasingly seeing that capacity increase, but nobody could actually increase the number of FTEs to balance that. And obviously, with a platform where the management was fairly consistent, that was easier to manage. You know, as you said, if you've got somebody who has to have skills in about four or five different products, that it's not just the knowledge of how to, to maintain that product, it's also the knowledge of how that product connects into the application and ecosystem. You know, how do I configure it specifically? Can I configure things to look the same? And I found that vendors ended up being used for one platform or another, and then that's massively wasteful. So, you know, the idea of being able to standardize, I think, becomes much more important. And clearly, that's the sort of thing that you must see customers making the mistakes around, this idea of sort of dedicating platforms for different use cases or even possibly separate projects, where it just makes no sense to do that. Yeah, that's right. And there's a notion of the right tool for the right job and different storage platforms. If I just look at our, our fleet now, our lineup of of products we start at the excel at the high end uh tier zero space in the market that working kind of its way down from performance standpoint to the x to the c to the e uh, cloud block store um, supporting cloud-based store cloud block-based storage workloads in azure and aws all those products have different performance profiles uh, and are going to be used for different applications but the operating system is exactly the same across them the feature set is exactly the same across them the uh, administration tools, the control plane infusion that can automate a lot of the backend management work, all of that works across the platform. So uh, it really does feel and operate more as one big integrated system, uh, even though you have different arrays in the backend serving the different use cases. And I think that's the model customers really want, where there's a lot of commonality in the front end and the management side of it. but. Um, serving up the data and supporting the use case, you've got something that's kind of the right price to performance equation sitting behind it. And that's always been an issue. I think there's always been that issue of, of getting the balance right between price and performance. And it's always been a challenge because one of the things I think that we've never, we didn't really have in the, in, in the old days, and it's not necessarily ubiquitous on modern platforms, is that data mobility. So for instance, if you look at the scenario that says, in your portfolio, you know, I might put something on an X platform, but then actually I realize it can take the performance of the C and that's going to be more cost effective. Mm -hmm. I would like to find an easy way just to migrate that data across to that platform. I don't want to go through a migration exercise where I've got to come in at the weekends and do all of that. I just want the system yep. to say, 
move that stuff. More importantly, I want the system to tell me that that's an option I should be doing because that's going to save me money. So that data mobility piece, I think, is, is super critical. And without consistency of API platform, it's pretty much impossible. Yeah, that's 100% right. And uh, I think that's something we do very well, um, just because, again, we've also built all this from the ground up. And so across the X, the C, the XL, now the E, uh, that commonality of APIs and operating system really make that make that difference. And you you layer that in with the AIOps management platforms like a pure one, which is giving you recommendations on what array to place the workload. A relatively new feature for us, something called Active Workload, which synchronously replicates the data across the arrays and allows you to do that mobility in a, we'll call it a manual fashion, but you choose uh, which array you want to move to and when you want to move it. Uh, or you can go all the way to something like a pure fusion, which really disaggregates the notion of the array to the end user, where they're not even thinking about, is it an X or a C or an XL behind it? In fact, they have no need to know what the storage is. They're interacting with a catalog of policy-based storage classes that the storage teams have made available to them. And based on, you know, if they move, let's say, from a gold volume to a bronze volume because they didn't need the performance they originally thought and want to pay a lower cost for it, Fusion is going to make that move for them on the back end, uh, rebalance the fleet, do everything uh, completely uh, automated behind the scenes. So there's there's various options for how customers want to do that, but you're getting to exactly exactly the end state they're looking for. Perfect. I mean, and that I think leads us into the discussion where we can talk about the new products now, because I imagine I'm a customer who potentially has been using some of your existing products. I now move into using, say, either the, the brand new Flash Array E or even the upgraded R4s. And obviously some of that can be upgraded in place. Some of it is new, but that is new capacity, new performance that actually upgrades what customers had six, 12 months ago. So in terms of the R4 releases of the two products, what are customers getting in this new version and how does it change the the, the performance and the capacity of those systems? Yeah, so within within the R4s, um, they're getting a number of benefits. Uh, from a performance standpoint, they're gonna see up to 40% more performance, and that's driven largely by us leveraging the latest uh, chips from Intel, the Sapphire Rapid CPUs. That and the software optimizations around it have driven a significant boost in, uh, in overall performance. They're gonna see uh, more density from the larger, larger flash drives that we've introduced, uh, 36 terabyte TLC drives, 75 terabyte QLC drives in the C, TLC in the X, QLC in the C. Uh, those are the largest in the industry of their, of their respective uh, NAND types. They're going to see um, better compression uh, as well as we introduced a offload, offload FPGA compression card into our Excel earlier this year uh, based on compression algorithms we developed in-house. That's now making its way into the larger X and C models. So they'll see a 35% boost in compression. So and really significant cards, games. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Dan. Will those be standard in, the, in those platforms going forward? They will be on the large, yeah, they'll be standard in the larger configurations. They will, um, and again, there's no additional cost for that. Uh, that's just part of the build materials or the, sta the standard build. And probably best of all, they will see that at no additional cost to them if they're Evergreen Forever subscribers. Um, and we've been doing that, obviously, for a very long time. That was one of the things... Pure became known for were those non-disruptive upgrades. You know, we've done more than 30,000 arrays in production have been upgraded non-disruptively in place through generations. Uh, and we still have customers that started with FA400s, you know, nine years ago before we even moved to the M's, then to the X's as people follow Pure. So 
we have customers that went into production nine years ago with a 12U array that was still much smaller than the large cabinet they replaced from, from somebody else. And uh, that's now sitting at a 3U XR3 that's also got 10X the data capacity that the original array they purchased had. So they've, you know, everything has basically changed, uh, but they've been able to go through that journey all in place and they'll do that with the R4. So it's pretty, it's pretty special. And this is, the R4 is the, the most significant performance boost we ever had between generations. Typically we see 15 to 20%. Uh, this time we're seeing 30 to 40. You know, that's impressive if you think about what a customer's going to get, because if they're getting that upgrade as part of their subscription, they're getting something that comes along just as part of a normal in-place upgrade for which they, you know, their subscription covers. That's mm-hmm. that's quite a significant up- uptick. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real boost. And I think it speaks to the value of, of what Pure has been able to do to customers, why our customers are so loyal, why we have the NPS scores we have, and that we continue to try to just make their investments better over time. So what about uh, front-end protocols then in terms of connectivity? Is that now covering the whole uh, the whole range of connect- connection options? Yeah, it covers the whole, whole range of connections. We introduced NVMe over TCP support earlier this year. Uh, I believe we're the only vendor now covering all the major NVMe over fabric types from TCP, Rocky, um, and Fiber Channel. Obviously got iSCSI and uh, Classic Fiber Channel. And so, yeah, there's uh, every every connected type you can you can think of. Perfect. So in terms of the new model types, we can put a slide into the deck that shows the new models. If you want to summarize them, feel, you know, feel free. I'd be interested just to understand the sort of small to the large in terms of scalability, because I think that will help to just put in context the comment you just made about the fact that when people started out with the original platform, the 400s and the capacity those could offer, actually, I think I seem to remember there was an 11 terabyte option in that, first of all many many years ago but if you look at it now you know scalability wise on those platforms you're pretty much covered i think from a block perspective yeah your scale is your scale gets quite high so um into the from the x series our smallest model is the x20 uh that'll now support up to 314 terabytes of uh, effective capacity and that's that's assuming a five to one data reduction ratio but so I'll just kind of go go down the model lineup with those um, assumed largest effective capacity ratios. Uh, yeah. So the the X twenty at three hundred fourteen terabytes. Uh, next up up is an X fifty uh, up to six hundred sixty three terabytes. An X seventy up to two point three petabytes, uh, and an X ninety up to three point three petabytes. And that range just continues uh, with the XL. Um, offering an even lower latency profile uh, and and. Um, uh, support up to the up to the five petabyte category, so you've got really really high scale out of these very high performance uh, block systems. Actually, unified block and file systems, but um, very very large systems. If you go down to the C lineup, which again is really optimized for uh, consolidation and density, um, and still still very high performance related to hybrid arrays or HCI infrastructures, which is typically what these are replacing. That starts at a C50 with up to 1.6 petabytes, uh, C70 at 4.8 petabytes, and a C90 at almost 9 petabytes of um, effective capacity. So very, very dense systems, and these will leverage those 75 terabyte uh, QLC drives that I mentioned. And I think if you drew a matrix, you could probably, um, maybe that's something that I need to go and do, actually. But if you, drew, if you drew a matrix, I'm sure you can quite easily show how capacity versus performance, you know, you've got the different models and the different um, solutions at different points. But obviously, at some point, 
you must have decided that the flash rate E was a sensible addition to this portfolio in order to fill you know another area of that mapping and obviously that's one of the new products that you you've also announced yeah no i mean these are everything i've mentioned to this point the the xl the x the c um are really predominantly used uh, for primary data scenarios production oltp applications vdi workloads um you know just virtualization workloads in general and are playing in the core kind of bread and butter of the uh, of the all flash market and the um, and the hybrid array market, where we some secondary data and uh, C is really op- is a really popular option for backup and recovery, kind of pairs in with the flash blade for um, very fast rapid restore scenarios uh, to complement that. But um, we're still really kind of what I call the slightly higher end of the storage market, and Pure has not played uh, historically in the secondary data repository and archival space. Um, and those were scenarios that were, you know, the primary factor I think for customers was the acquisition price of the array. Um, and then putting data on that that they had to keep, but deeming of little enough value, they didn't actually need to be able to access it. Slightly more value than data gets stored on tape, but uh, still cl- cl- closer to that cold archive than than anything else. So that was an area that, that Pure did not previously play in. Uh, we heard demand from our customers to try to find peer and to try to be able to put peer in as many places as possible. We've been expanding out, right? If you started from that core X product line uh, many years ago when it was the, the those FAs really became the Xs. We introduced Flashblade for scale out file and object scenarios. We started to expand the X line, a little lower performance with the Cs, higher performance with the XLs, and we're just continuing to go down checking off uh, workloads that are complementary and adjacent meeting our customer needs. Uh, and the jump to E was really, I think, a surprise for a lot of people that we're able to now come into the areas that are probably taking up the most data center space from a storage standpoint, and the majority of the data being uh, data volumes sitting sitting on disk uh, and come in at a price point that's right there that's right there with it with disk so e is going to travel at you know less than half the price of rc per gigabyte as an example um so it's a very very low acquisition cost yeah that's an interesting one because it's interesting to to go back and look at the you know where the data center's gone and i know when we um when we had the flash blade um e release talking to Alex McMullen, we went into some of the detail about, you know, exactly how you intend to get to that really low cost per gigabyte, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. in a second. And, and obviously, even then, he said that was without even looking at things like um, compression and DGIP. It was a, it yep. was all about the actual, you know, an actual usable value, a, a raw value. I think there's an interesting trade-off that says there's mo- there's lots of data that people might just look at and think, well, we'd love to do something with this, but we can't justify the cost of putting it on Flash. If we could put it somewhere where we could actually exploit it, we we would, but you've got to find something that's going to work to the level of performance you want, but at the same time is going to be cost-effective. So I just wonder how many additional use cases you'll generate through this um, technology, rather than it just being a case of somebody saying, oh, I can sweep the floor of some of my old hardware. I think you'll generate as much new use case um, examples as you will actually just use it for replacement. 100%. That's some, that's something I'm very excited about. I mean, I think the if you just look at the replacement argument and now the acquisition cost itself, as you mentioned, kind of on a raw standpoint, it's right there on par with disk. You start to factor in the benefits of, you know, a fifth of space and power, um, 85% less e-waste, orders of magnitude higher reliability, much lower operating costs kind of from the earlier conversations. 
we had around uh, around the the OS and the manageability platforms. That combined with the low acquisition cost should make a really really compelling argument to to start to place those disk based arrays. Um, and then it's kind of the added bonus of well the performance is that many times higher, right? Eight times higher serial throughput than than disk. Eight hundred times higher random IOPS. It's just night and day, and you're going to start to uncover exactly those types of use cases and things you're able to do. So it's like if if the compelling cost and TCO advantage wasn't enough, here's one more thing that should just make this uh, a very, very easy decision. Well, I think with a lot of customers, that that helps in the purchasing choice, doesn't it? You know, if you can go to a bit, generate a business case that takes somebody else's money within the business, not just the refresh money, you've got the option to go away and say, look, we can actually deliver something that you can use for this particular business. And that helps generate the justification a bit more. So what will Flash Array E look like compared to the Flash Blade E? Well, it's not going to start at the same capacity, for example, I would imagine. Correct. And that, and that really was why we introduced the Flash Array E uh, and so quickly after the Flash Blade. The, the general value prop is exactly the same. The use cases we're serving are exactly the same. Um, the products themselves, this is the first time we've really positioned Flash Array and Flash Blade in direct overlap of use case, but it's, it's very deliberately. Typically, Flash Array and Flash Blade are serving very different purposes for customers um, and very different use cases, and that's great in a completeness of portfolio and being able to do what they need to do. These two are um, overlapping by design, and the primary difference is one being protocol stacks. Uh, Flash Blade is file and object, Flash Array is block and file. So if you are storing object data, it's a very easy choice to go with the Flash Blade E. If you are storing block-based data, which you probably won't hear on the E, but uh, that option is there, uh, you look at the Flash Array. Um, but then the major thing is the, is the uh, capacity difference. Flash Array is one to four petabytes. In the E, Flash Blade E uh, will go from uh, four petabytes to, to north of 20. And uh, that's, really, that's really the spot of the market that we got a tremendous reaction to Flash Blade E, by the way. I think overwhelmed by the response we got from our customers. Um, and uh, the interest in that product. And if there was one thing they were asking for, it was to have a smaller form factor. Say, this is great, I wanna start replacing this, but four petabytes is a pretty big jump off point. So what can you do to, to help us if we, have, if we have less data than that in the kind of secondary archival space? Uh, and so this, this is our answer to that. Yeah, perfect. So other than that, to all intents and purposes, it's a flash array. It's just the, the form factor capacity looks like the e models but it's just exactly the same no, no difference in terms of uh, operating protocols everything else stays the same 100 uh, we have not defeatured it in any way operating system is exactly the same uh, management through pure one can come under the fusion control plane model all these different things uh, it is a flash array uh, and in many ways architecturally it's a flash array c from a lot of components but we've taken the largest uh, c configuration and we've put the smallest controller in it um, and so what you end up seeing is a latency uh, and a performance penalty associated with that with that really large storage. So there's a significant difference in, uh, in latency and performance from, uh, from the core C, but architecture they look, or component-wise, they, they, they are the same. Perfect. Okay, one of the things that has been a, an ongoing discussion throughout this conversation, you've mentioned it already, I think you even had some lying around in, um, in the office you're sitting in, and that's the use of DFMs. Now, it's only a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, that um, I had a conversation with Alex, and we're talking about the intention to reach 300 terabytes per DFM in something like three years' time, which sounds like mm -hmm. 
a massively um, ambitious um, challenge to meet. But we, we talked about it at the time and he sort of said, well, you know, it's not like we're going to just go to that in three years time and that'll be it. Expect to see stages. And I think for, through the, these announcements, we're seeing stage one of that in terms of the 75 terabyte DFMs. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, the 75s are out now. I think uh, within uh, as the next stage in that journey, you'll probably see 150s and then and then over to threes. Uh, it's a pretty clear clear roadmap from from our side. Um, and it you know I think when Pure went to to design and develop our own uh, flash modules, that was a pretty risky decision at the at the time. And I think a lot of people sort of questioned questioned that, but we knew that we'd be able to. Um, really control our own destiny here and take full advantage of the innovations happening within within flash technology by doing that. In addition to all the benefits we get around um, having our own firmware on the DFMs, the telemetry they send back, which helps us improve our products. Um, there's a number of other ancillary benefits that way, but uh, just from a density, efficiency, reliability standpoint, uh, those have uh, those have proven to be um, a key to uh, key to our success. Now, we've got plenty of other podcasts where we've talked about the internals of the DFM and all those sort of aspects. And I'll point people to all of that in the show notes so they can go back and have a listen to all of that material, because I think it's worth just understanding why we've ended up where we've ended up, because, it, you know, there are lots of very specific nuances. And you, you highlighted a good example at something as simple as your ability to dynamically change the firmware on those devices, which a vendor of traditional SSDs wouldn't be able to do. What I, I just thought would be an interesting comparison was to say, well, if I had a 75 terabyte DFM, and that was equivalent to, say, five 15 terabyte hard drives, I was just trying to work out the difference in weight, power, cooling, and performance that would just, it, it's not even really a comparison. But, you know, it, it, but I think it does highlight the difference in terms of where flash has reached and where dfms have reached when you look at it and think what a, a pile of you know five old style uh, hard drives would look like yeah it, it you're right it isn't really a comparison but it's it's an important point to look at side by side and then the thing you you kind of look to is the growth trajectory uh, and the density curve that we're really kind of just starting right getting to 75 terabytes was a pretty was a was a pretty massive lift and over over the course of a number of years but now we're going to jump from 75 to 150. We're going to jump from 150 to 300. And that's going to happen in a very sh relatively short amount of time uh, to what took to get here. And so that that disparity is just going to grow by by leaps and bounds now. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, that's, it's really interesting to see. Now, funny enough, there was an article I, I read on, um, I think it was the BBC website last week, and they were looking at uh, trying to understand why so many hard drives are thrown away. And I thought that was a really interesting article because it, it highlights how, first of all, customers are really worried about the idea of you know, uh, the data that might be left on there, so they want to actually um, destroy them. But also, generally, they're not really that much pra practical use um, after a certain length of time. I don't think many people want to be still using two terabyte drives. You know, it, it, that technology is, you always want the latest stuff with it. If I look at how you're using your technology across the board and how you help customers upgrade and how you, you swap that around, these new systems obviously will be part of the Evergreen One and Pure One setup. And I think it's worth just mm -hmm. reminding people when you actually have a system that's the, or an environment that's comprised of more than one system, that in the back end, those platforms are actually giving you the ability to be much more dynamic and from a business perspective and from a technical perspective to make sure everything's running the way you want it to run. 
Yeah, um, exactly right. So if you look at an evergreen one, for example, the customer in theory doesn't even need to know what arrays are, are behind the scenes. Obviously, it's it's all pure arrays in our, our lineup of Flash Array and FlashBlade products and Cloudblock Store that that serve up the workloads, but you're subscribing to uh, SLAs and performance levels, essentially. And then you're trusting uh, the vendor, in this case, Pure, to deliver that to you and, 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 and hold that to you. Now, we do that through our technology, obviously, and our, and our, own, our own software and hardware. But that's a, I guess that's the secondary piece to the customer. The first is, can you, can you deliver me the service I'm looking for? Uh, can you meet my performance, my uh, security, my, all those SLAs kind of associated with that? Uh, and then the how you do it is really the secondary piece. But I think most people, uh, if, you, you know, if you're an AWS customer, you're not necessarily going in their data centers and taking apart the hardware behind them to see what's under the covers. Evergreen One, you know, think of it as a similar concept, but but within your data center um, from that standpoint. Um, but yes, so all that technology, it's making its way there, but the focus for the customer is the end outcome and the SLA they're able to drive versus the hardware behind it. I think the client's a good comparison. I think this is worth um, using as a comparison because if you imagine, if you look back, oh gosh, uh, to say the beginning of the, of the 2010s when I suppose... Uh, Vendors like Amazon were really sort of coming to market and um, really ramping up their delivery of uh, you know, cloud-based instances and so on. The one thing you saw with that was very quick price reductions from those vendors. Mm-hmm. They very much uh, reduced their prices. Um, I guess a degree of that was you know competitive nature and all the rest of it. But actually, a lot of that in the background is then being complemented by an increase in performance. So you know, look, just pick the storage on AWS. We saw things like IO2 Express and IO2 come in as they, mm-hmm. they revamped their infrastructure. Similarly, I think the on-premises vendors have a requirement to do something similar where they can demonstrate reduction in cost, increase in performance and capability, increase in density and scalability. And it's quite clear you can show a roadmap to that. And that's where... When we look at, say, how that's delivered through Evergreen One, that becomes a SaaS cost almost, just like you would do in the cloud. And that movement towards almost like SaaS on-premises, I think, is quite a strong one. And you can only really deliver it the way you're doing it, I think, with continuous upgrades to your products that allow customers to see some ongoing reduction in, in cost and increase in benefit. Yeah, that's the beauty of the Evergreen architecture is we're able to do that and roll that in and and, and have that, uh, again, completely sort of transparent to customers. But roll those benefits in, improve the service without having to improve, increase the costs on it. I mean, you see it in the CapEx model too, as we talked about with the huge jumps in performance and density that our X and C customers will see with the R4 without having to pay anything additional for it. So at the end of the day, they're ultimately, they're, they're getting more at that same price point. Um, that's even more pronounced uh, in Evergreen One. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so Dan, in terms of when these products will be available, is it straight away or is it going to be later this year? Now with those uh, XCR4s, uh, the next generation, those are those are available straight away. Uh, start talking to to us about it, um, and then uh, we're opening up the ordering uh, as well um, on the on the flash arrays, and be be shipping those shortly. Okay, and in terms of uh, finding out more, where should we point people to? Obviously, you have an event uh, taking place this week as well, so. Yeah, I mean, if you're here with us in Las Vegas right now, Pure Accelerate, hopefully you're hearing all this and, and you're finding out more there. Uh, but otherwise, uh, purestorage.com is a great starting point and all the content will be up on the website. Uh, and then, of course, talk to any any Pure reseller, uh, consulting partner or uh, Pure sales team and I'll be happy to fill you in on the details. So yeah, Dan, great to catch up with you and 
congratulations on the new announcements and um, look forward to seeing what the next one's going to be. Thanks so much, Chris. It was great talking with you. Thanks. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.